Father, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for another Sunday. Thank you for um, the ability to be together, to be able to worship. Thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here and every story that's represented. And uh, Lord, I just pray especially for those here who maybe don't want to be and aren't really sure that they should be or um, why they're here, but I pray that you would open their hearts and minds to hear that, Lord, you've invited us to a new path, and you're always inviting us, and we're always learning it, and Lord, it is a good way. It's a hard way, but help us to trust you, because it is the path of trust. I pray that you would bless our kids today as they hear from you. We believe that all that we're doing is to help them um, know that at the deepest core of their identity is um, that they are made to worship. They are made to, to be in awe of you, made to find themselves in um, your creative glory and your love for them. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, on this uh, second Sunday of Advent, John the Baptizer, or Baptist, if you prefer, he returns to our gospel. And we, so we get a chance uh, to think together again about repentance. That's where I want us to focus this morning. What is repentance? What does it do? Why this prophet, dressed like the, uh, the prophet Elijah in his leather belt, baptizing people in the wilderness? Why was he leveling? Why was he lining up the path for the kingdom and for her king with this particular kind of call to repentance embodied in this act of baptism? These questions matter because I think, you know, the fact is there is really just no Christianity apart from repentance. The meaning of which arguably matters as much as anything in our theology. I think you could argue that, that the meaning of repentance is as important as anything else we understand in Christian theology. Repentance is initial, it's central, and it's total in the gospel. If the grace of God through faith in God are the means, then repentance is the way. Not just one way or the initial way, but the way we are always living it, receiving it, experiencing it. In Martin Luther's words, all of the Christian life is repentance. Maybe some of you know that experientially. And he said this, not a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. So it's pretty important, I would say. And honestly, I would argue that most, if not all, of the problems of Christianity in America today and probably throughout history have much to do with how seriously we take or have taken repentance. The posture it requires and the culture it makes, individually and corporately. Many churches, particularly today, don't actually teach it. Or maybe they teach it selectively. And therefore, many people in the pews have never actually done it or do it selectively. Truth be told, whenever my Christianity isn't very Christian, it's probably because repentance is less than the daily substance of my Christianity. I'm not living a repentant life. So what is repentance? What is it? John came making a path for Jesus, and he's priming the pump of Jesus' own call for repentance. So again, it's the way in which Jesus, through which Jesus calls 
us to himself the way that John was preparing people to be prepared for the call of Jesus. Repentance is actually often confused or reduced to simply how it begins. Being regretful or sorry. Ask yourself, is that what I've thought of as repentance? Being sorry for what I've done and then not being sorry anymore. Remorse for sin, remorse for our error, for our ignorance is certainly part of it, but it's not nearly all of it. This confusion, actually, or you know, maybe this reduction that we, we, we practice is understandable to a degree, probably for a lot of reasons, um, but it's understandable to a degree because, honestly, the English word repent, it isn't even a great translation of the Greek. Metanoite, and the Hebrew shuv. The problem is we just don't have a better single word in English than repent. The Germans do have a better word, and so do the French. The Germans translate the word umkehren, which means literally turn around. To repent is to turn around. The French retour means the same thing. The problem with repent as a word is the fact that it lives more in the feelings and the head than the feet and the hands. We tend to do that, don't we? Repentance in the biblical and in the prophetic sense means it invokes a sense of changing direction, of course correcting, if you will, radically returning. And it's this tangible, active pursuit of another way entirely. Not just, not that, but very much this. So repentance is, is we see it throughout the whole of Scripture. It's the prophetic call from Nathan to Nehemiah, from Jonah to John. Turn around and go this way, not that one. That way is death. This way is life. That way is suffering. This way is flourishing. So the Jordan waters of John's baptism, they became this kind of physical interaction with that reality where this change of path this turning was embraced and where it was initiated marked where it was commemorated right and it was embodied it was not merely an admission it wasn't a concession to a a particular belief it wasn't just a resolution made you know in one's head or it wasn't even a confession But it included that. It was a physical and immersive, embodied response in front of God and everybody. Like this voluntary near-death experience. An awakening that you walk into and through and out of. And we're not even talking about Christian baptism yet. We're talking about this prophetic anticipation of it that, that, that John is trying to, to help them um, wake up to. A, a prophetic anticipation of what was to come in Christ. It was kind of a window of God's, uh, of God's holy law, a sense of their own not meeting the, the requirements there through which the door of God's grace could be seen. Put another way, you know, John's baptism, it wasn't new life and redemption from the weight of the law. But it was actually an expression of a renewed desire for these things. To follow God, to please the Lord, to prepare one's heart for the messianic age of what it was to come. It was a willingness. So through baptism, John actually brought people to the window to gaze in expectation of the Messiah. 
If the king was going to come and was going to bring God's rule and God's justice to the world, they had to, insofar as they could, get ready for it. Well, what can we do? And so John came performing this very unique way of baptism. It wasn't self, uh, you know, it it wasn't uh, something that was self-practiced or or self-instituted. It was something that you gave yourself to and allowed another to do for you. This was new in the way that John was administering this. And so they were getting ready for this. And this, uh, you know, it brought people, as I said, to the window to gaze in expectation of the Messiah. And if the king was going to come and was going to bring God's rule, God's justice, they were getting ready for it. And so John brought the revelation of it. But Jesus was going to bring the realization of it. Anticipation expectation. And that's where we find ourselves in the spirit of Advent. That's why it's, it's right and good for us to look at John's baptism, um, you know, his baptism called repentance, and to think about repentance in our own lives. Preparation. Jesus brought the realization, and both John and Jesus arrived calling for a, uh, a thorough response through repentance. Now, I think we would all say at one level, like, we like change and transformation, right? We, all, of all kinds, especially if it seems accessible, a little easier, or especially if, um, you know, other people are changing, transforming. I just read a funny Calvin and Hobbes uh, little comic about that, and maybe I'll send it in an email. Super funny. Anyway, <laughs> very random. So... We like change and transformation, at least selectively, at least abstractly. Like, we like the idea of transformation, right? But let, let me just make what may be the understatement of the year. I'm going to squeeze it in in December, if you will, under the wire. Repentance is hard. Repentance is hard. Actual repentance is difficult. And if it's not, it's probably not repentance after all. C.S. Lewis said this, Repentance is no fun at all. It is something harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. At the very least, repentance is difficult because you're still learning to repent from things that are just fundamentally human and have been passed along to you. In some sense, the effects, at least, of the sins of our fathers and our mothers. Repentance is hard because, as I've already said, it includes admitting not only that you failed or were wrong in some particular way, but you've been invested in the wrong direction. You've been invested in it, willingly or not. You've been invested, maybe you've just been ignorant. But either way, your wrongness has been internalized. And chances are it has come to feel like rightness. or even righteousness, until it doesn't. Repentance is hard because we end up having to reckon with the reality. Now think about this. The reality that the knowledge that we gained going in the wrong direction, all that stuff we knew before, it was ultimately unhelpful. And what happens? There's a grief that comes along with that. All that time and energy and attention we gave to our misguided path can just be hard to reconcile. And so as we repent, we, have to, we end up having to trust God that He is redeeming and will redeem that path 
that's so hard to leave. There is a kind of grief involved. We might not even be aware of that. What do we do with what we've been doing? How do we think about what we've been thinking? If we're meant to change. About 10 years into my marriage to Ashley, I had to walk through one of the more significant seasons of repentance in my life. And I've had many of them. Not so much as a matter of me having to really address an overt, obvious sinfulness, but a pattern of unhealth in me, my way, my normal, that was hurting us. An area where the gospel still needed to do some real work of transformation, and I had to participate in it. I'd been, honestly, the, the, the person that I was, then the life that I lived, I'd been emotionally self-protective for a decade in my marriage. Because I had become emotionally self-protective as a child. A child of an addict, accustomed to just weathering chaos. Trying to ignore it. So by a combination, really, of both nature and of nurture, of pain and personality, I had learned to protect myself from my feelings. And what happens when you protect yourself from your feelings? You protect yourself from others' feelings as well. I was protecting myself from my wife's feelings, a massive part of who she was. And I had to figure out by a new way of, for lack of a better way to put it, a new way of paying attention, a new way of listening. It was so hard, you know, how to know my wife and to love her for who she was and who she is, not who I thought she was or hoped she was becoming. I had to learn to pay a new kind of attention, and it was uncomfortable. And it still is. I even had to come to terms with some emotional pain that I had caused her on our wedding day and that she had never had the courage to tell me about. I was unaware of it for a whole decade. And then I had to hear it in a moment, in agonizing detail. But the truth is, if I didn't change, things were going to get worse. Maybe worse than that, I was going to keep telling myself things were better than they really were. And that's a terrible thought. And that's actually why repentance is so important in every aspect of our lives. And let me say this, maybe the guys need to hear it more, I don't know. You can't really be sufficiently attuned to how other people feel if you aren't attuned to how you feel. And I'm not trying to be a squidgy, Sort of psych, you know, I love counselors and psychologists. I'm not trying to do psychobabble here. It's just the truth. I've lived it. You can't feel what they feel if you don't feel what you feel. Or if you're unwilling to. The last thing I wanted to do was admit that my way wasn't working. But it was the first thing that had to happen. This for me was and is, just like I said, a kind of ongoing repentance. It's hard. Now let me talk about John a bit more. As we make more sense of his role in preparing for Jesus and in laying the tracks for the life of repentance, the, li- the life of relating to God in trust and in, in repentance. John, like the prophets before him, was, he was more than a mouthpiece. He was more than a message. He was an embodiment of Israel. As the preeminent Jewish scholar and rabbi who you've heard me mention, Abraham Heschel, declared, he said, the prophets were the most disturbing people who have ever lived 
whose inspiration brought the Bible into being. So he's, he's talking in this context about how they lived. They didn't just speak. And he said, whose significance lies not only in what they said, but also in what they were. There was a reason John was in the wilderness, and he was weird. This is why John found himself in the wilderness of Judea, even though he should have been in the temple with his father, Zechariah. That would have seemed to be the honorable place to be. The beneficial place to be. The platform. But he's in the wilderness, and here he was, he was symbolically. Not just, he wasn't just outdoorsy. No one can blame him for wanting to camp out, right? But what is he doing? He's creating in his body and in his ministry another meeting space, place, so to speak, for all of Israel to face their God in the wilderness. To come back to the story, to turn around back to the story where God historically would meet them in their wanderings of heart. Where the Lord God would always put his finger on their rebellion in the wilderness. The wilderness was the place they were tested so they could learn again to trust and obey in a vulnerable world with their vulnerable hearts. That's why John is out there. And arguably this passage from Isaiah remembered in verse 3 of our gospel, it reads like this, the voice of one crying, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. In the wilderness make his path straight. In the wilderness expect God to make a beeline toward us. That's what he does and where he does it. Let's go there. Come here. John is saying. John was God's echo and he was howling if you take the phrase crying out as strongly as it's intended. It's a strong phrase. He is sounding the kind of cry that sits you up in your bed at night and to which you respond, what was that? What was that? And somehow the people were saying, what, what is that? They're responding. A movement was afoot. It was resonating. They were indeed going out to him from the whole region, verse 5 tells us. But they weren't being called to listen to new ways of thinking only. Oh, here's a, another teacher. Here's some new considerations for our, our religious understanding. Here's some, some more spiritual accessories for our do-gooderism. They were being called into the water again. And you probably know this from what we teach and understand about baptism, but it was already in play as, a, as, a, as an initial call and, like I said, this window into what Jesus would do. The water in Israel's story is as significant as the wilderness. Water and wilderness. The flood. The Red Sea. The Jordan River, again. All moments of faith or the lack thereof. All places of rescue or of judgment. All places of promise, but also of participation by a willing remnant. You read the stories, then you think of what baptism is and what John was calling them to do and inviting them to, to do it in a way, again, not self-administered, but that he would take them into the water, that they would yield, that they would relent and be plunged. In verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And here's the turn. He says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John isn't being as mysterious as you might think here. This isn't a parable. Because when he said these things, most people would have had at least some frame of reference for what he was anticipating. They would have 
understood when he said the Holy Spirit and fire, well, that means something. They had their story to refer to. John's baptism with water, yes, is a response to the moral call to holiness and repentance that's anchored in the timeless law of God. But Jesus will baptize with two agents, the Holy Spirit and fire. And the Holy Spirit to pre-Christian Jewish ears meant this miraculous, tangible, creative movement of God on earth. Impersonal in the Old Testament, but no less powerful. They were expecting power. The Holy Spirit was going to do for Israel what she cannot do for herself, as the Holy Spirit had always done in their story, creatively and powerfully. The Holy Spirit will empower where there is only weakness. The Holy Spirit will bring clarity and conviction where they might otherwise see no real problem. It's going to be a completely sovereign move of God. That's what they would have heard him saying. In other words, it will be a miraculous work of grace. It will be unearned and it will be even unsought. God will show up. And apart from God doing it, it won't get done. And this is the same thing that Jesus expected Nicodemus, the Pharisee, to know when he said, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? God's going to move. And this baptism, not only with the Holy Spirit, but with fire, And those aren't really something to say, well, this and then that and this and also that, but the Holy Spirit and fire. This, without a doubt, is qualified by verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And I think we don't need to rush to seeing this as right down the middle of between these people and those people, but right down the middle of Seth. This Seth and that Seth. Jesus is going to confront everything in God's people, individually and corporately, that has been confused with what's good. Weeds confused with wheat. And we see this over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. A rich young ruler has bundled the fruit of his obedience with the chaff of his riches. The Pharisees have bundled the fruit of their leadership with the chaff of their hypocrisy. Of course, John won't spend any time on it. He sees that as well. They would hide it behind their long robes and their phylacteries. Even Jesus' own disciples, after so much time with him, found themselves bundling the fruit of their loyalty to him with the chaff of their desire for power and position in the kingdom. John 6, Jesus tells a larger group of his disciples that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Doesn't sound that strange to us, but to them it was bonkers. And he's lighting a fire to expose faith and dependence, or the lack thereof. So many of them couldn't bear it, and they turned back. But his closest disciples challenged as these, uh, you know, by these winnowing words, they remained. Where will we go? You have the words of life. Jesus baptizes with fire because there is always, always chaff among the wheat of our lives and of our understanding. We tend not to see it. And so John is already priming them to expect the kind of unexpected exposure. Be ready for fire that refines. Be ready for a challenge to your priorities and to your expectations where the Messiah is concerned. Be ready. 
In fact, we know John goes through this as well. And I think it's important to bring this into the story. Jesus, as it turns out, has to burn away John's own nearsighted expectations for the Messiah. Shouldn't he have gotten it? The prophet can't see everything well enough either. Eight chapters later, John is imprisoned by Herod after having done what he understandably thought was the work of Israel's prophet. You go to the Israel's king, or at least, you know, sort of wannabe king, Herod, and you tell him what he's doing wrong. Well, that gets John in prison. And John can't seem to make sense of things based on his own experience. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? How do we reconcile these two Johns? We reconcile them by understanding that, that, that John's understanding was conditioned by his circumstances. Jesus looks different from jail than he does from the banks of the Jordan. And Jesus answered them, John's disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Even John was offended by what was being required of him in his understanding. He was offended by the fire, having to burn away even some of the chaff of his seeming clarity. In other words, what were you expecting, John? So let me just say this. The whole point of the Christian faith, friends, is dependence on, on God. It's not self-discovery or self-actualization, right, with God as an accessory. It comes to us through Repentance. Repentance is the surrender of all our paths, all our nearsighted ideas of ourselves, of all our, our, our best laid plans, full as they are of blind spots. The whole point of the Christian faith is dependence on God, and it begins in repentance. Truth is, if repentance is not the way we follow Jesus, the expanse of our hearts are not going to grow in capacity to be loved by Him, to be loved as deeply as He loves us, to really experience it. By the same token, the expanse of our hearts will not grow to love others as he loves them. If we don't yield, if we don't turn. The call for repentance is, it's just in the end, friends, it's an invitation to this expansion of our own hearts, of our own lives. It's the call to receive grace, which is love in its purest form. Because the very nature, think about this and listen to this closely. The nature of divine, unconditional love is that it doesn't ever give up on the good that it desires for us, the object of that love. Even if we are the obstacle of that love. So we must turn. Availing ourselves to His will is how we experience His love at its greatest depths. It's how we experience His presence with us in this long, long journey of being made new. Maybe you've uh, been around this church thing for a long time. Let me just close with this. Maybe you're just starting over at it, thinking about starting over with it. Maybe you're just starting. But I want you today to hear the invitation again. The invitation 
to turn completely in trust to him. And I pray that it will be abundantly clear to you where the turning in your life needs to happen. Particularly because it will be exhaustively. And it will not be easy. This is why the call is for us and for us to do it together. Remember, you're not merely turning away from something. You're turning toward someone. You're not merely giving up. You're opening up. And that's what the gathering of the church is. We are the faithful repentant. That's what we are actually doing together even today. Instead of filling our hands and holding on and clinging to the things we so desperately want to in this week, the things we've earned or the things we desire, today we open up and we turn to Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, turns to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, whoever turns to me, I will never cast out. Do you believe that? It's my prayer that you believe that today. And trust the Lord with the call to repentance. It is his call. And Lord, I pray that you help us to receive it again today. As we enter into another season of anticipation, help us to know that that happens in spirit of, in the culture of, and in the action of repentance, of turning again and turning and turning and trusting and course correcting as we listen to your spirit together, listen to your word. Lord, move in us. My words aren't sufficient, but your word is alive. Move in your people today and renew us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.